One of the wrong ideas that some Christians have about how the Old and New Testaments can be described is that the Old Testament is about judgment and the New Testament is about grace. That's a wrong way to describe these two Testaments. That one would be about judgment and the other would be about grace. Whatever exposure some people have had to the Bible has led them to conclude that a division like like this exists. But if we are careful readers, we will notice there is grace in the Old Testament and there is judgment in the New Testament. Jesus taught about judgment. In Matthew eleven twenty two, he spoke of a coming day of judgment. In chapter twenty three thirty three of Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks of the wicked being sentenced to hell. In John three thirty six, whoever doesn't submit to Christ is someone that the text says is under the wrath of God. Paul taught about judgment. In his letters, like in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, he pronounces the curse of judgment upon any who preach and teach a false gospel. In 2 Timothy 4, 1, he says that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And near the end of the book of Revelation, a climactic scene of judgment. Near the end of Revelation, in Revelation 20, the judgment of the wicked, as well as a judgment for the devil himself. Surely we can see it is not the case that the Old Testament is about judgment and the New Testament about grace, but rather that the grace of God has come in flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ promised in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the mercy and grace of God were on display, His rescuing power and mighty hand over and over again in the New Testament. Judgment for the wicked is promised. The whole Bible teaches that God has grace towards sinners. And the whole Bible teaches that God judges the wicked. So when reading a Bible passage, it's important to ask, what is this passage teaching me about God and what I'm reading? And as we come to our Old Testament psalm today, we are going to read about judgment. But let this not confirm any uh, misunderstanding that that's because the Old Testament's all about that. Instead, we see in this psalm, What God will do through His Son promised in the New Testament, bring judgment and establish justice on behalf of His people. This is a psalm where the writer is suffering. The writer is David. That's what the superscription tells us right above verse 1. And this psalm of David is, is prayed to God because he is facing all manner of opposition and false accusations and his enemies seek to destroy him. They don't just want to knock him off balance. They don't just want to bring ruin to this or that realm of his life. They want him destroyed. And therefore, the the intent that he unveils from the hearts of his enemies in Psalm 35 is deeply disturbing because these are people who are out for David's very life. There is a desperation that you can sense in this. Like he's pressed up against the waters of the Red Sea. And what he needs is for God to do for him what he did for those once pressed against the Red Sea. That the enemies of God would be vanquished and that he would make a way for his people where there seems to be no way. This kind of psalm, which calls for such lengthy judgments on the wicked, has a name in books that reflect on the psalms. This is a kind of psalm called an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory psalm. And it is a psalm 
like other imprecatory psalms, that call for curses from God upon his enemies. David's psalm is like that. We don't know the details of the context. All we have in the superscription are the two words of David. We don't know the details then of what he's facing. We do know that in the Psalms throughout book one, he has faced the enemies of Saul. He has faced the Philistines. He has faced a number of circumstances that have driven him into periods of distress and despair. And in his lament and in his confusion, he does what the people of God must do. David calls upon the Lord. He believes that God reigns over all of his circumstances. He believes God is sovereign with might and unrivaled majesty. And therefore, though Saul and the Philistines and any other armies in David's contemporary life, though they come against him, God is trustworthy. David doesn't have to know all the ins and outs of the future. He knows God is faithful. And therefore, he calls upon the Lord to fight for him. We see this in verses 1 to 10, where we have an opening section of the call for God to fight, to fight the psalmist's devious enemies. Verses 1 to 10, the first big section of the psalm, the call for God to fight the psalmist's enemies. And the fighting language begins immediately. It's with the first word, contend, O Lord. Which means to battle with in some sense. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And this opening cry of the psalmist, he is calling for the Lord to act as a divine warrior in perfect righteousness and timing. There are those who are fighting against David. David says, Lord, I need you to contend with those who are contending with me. People are fighting against David. He says, oh God, I need you to rise up and I need you to fight against those who fight against me. This military imagery dominates these opening verses. We even see in verse 2, shield and buckler, which is the image of a handheld shield with the first noun, and then the buckler, a picture of a larger full body shield, sometimes carried by an aid to a warrior. And therefore you have this smaller thing to be held in a hand, and then a much larger thing that would be from one top of the top of your body to the, to the uh, soles of your feet to guard the entirety of your body, lest you uh, have all, some sort of onslaught of uh, arrows and other weapons that you wouldn't be able to defend against. So he says, Lord, take up the shield, take up the buckler, and rise for my help. The depiction is not David with the shield and javelin. It is not a picture of David with the buckler and the spear. The picture is Yahweh, the divine warrior. He says in verse 3, You, Yahweh, draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. So people are out for David's life. And he says, Lord, rise in your holy might as a righteous warrior. Oh God, come for me and defend me. Fight against them. And David says, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. You can just imagine a scene in a film where the evildoers and the wicked have come against those who are vulnerable and weak. And then the hero arises right at the appointed time and declares that he has come to rescue. 
And in verse 3, David says, I need you to do this, God. I need you to come with your holy might and you declare over me as your people, I am your salvation. And and then in verses 4 and following, David prays not just that that God would fight the psalmist's enemies, but that in verse 4, they be put to shame and dishonor. In verse 4, let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. David is not pulling punches here about the motives of his enemies. They are seeking the undoing of his very welfare in every way. They are devising evil. Therefore, wickedness is being strategized against David. And he says, Lord, they want to be pleased. I need you to make them disappointed. In verse 4, they think this will increase their honor and their power. I need you to bring them to shame. They are coming against me and pursuing me. I need you to turn them back. In verse 4, everything the enemies are seeking to do, David is saying, Lord, cause the very opposite to take place. I need the very opposite to take place on my behalf. And then in verse 5, let them be like chaff before the wind. Chaff before the wind brings to mind which earlier psalm. Think of the beginning of book 1. That the wicked are like chaff driven away by the wind. In verse 5, let them be like chaff. Let them be cast aside. The wicked under the judgment of God. With the angel of the Lord driving them away. The angel of the Lord reminds us here in the book of Exodus. Where the Israelites were pursued by the Egyptians. And the angel of God defended and protected the people of God. In verse 5 he says, Lord, let them be the wicked like chaff before the wind. Driven by the very angel of the Lord away. In verse 6, I need their path to not be successful. I need it to be dark so they can't see. I need it to be slippery so that they don't have a good foothold. If they need things to be clear, Lord, make it unclear. If they need their ground to be secure, make it unsecure. In verse 6, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. When David is praying for God to fight on his behalf and for his enemies to be absolutely humiliated and shamed, the reason that they are facing David and pursuing him is an unprovoked situation. This is clear in verses 7 and 8. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he doesn't know it. And let the net he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. David is hoping and praying that God will so providentially deal with the opposition in his life. That what others have set against David will become their own undoing. An ironic retributive principle. Harder to say out loud than in my mind I realize. Um. It is a principle of retribution where they are experiencing the ironic reversal of their strategies. They have set a net for David and it springs on them. Think of someone who set a trap for an animal and they pry it open and they go to set it. And yet they become the prey caught in their own trap. Think of evil Haman in the book of Esther who sought to destroy Mordecai using the execution method of the gallows. And yet by the end of the book, it is the villain Haman who is destroyed on the gallows he had prepared for another. 
In verse 7, David says, they're hiding a net, they're pursuing me unprovoked. There's a special element of malice there. Not because David was a perfect king and would have never done something to upset anybody. But here he says, it is without cause that they're doing this. They are, out of their evil and malicious hearts, pursuing me. So Lord, I need destruction to come upon them because they've dug a pit and I need them in it. They've set a snare. I need their feet caught up in it because they're hoping to destroy me. In verses 9 and 10, David anticipates the deliverance of the Lord. And he says, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who's too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. In verses 9 and 10, that in this first large section of the psalm, David is saying, Lord, I am ready to give you all glory for your rescuing might. I'm not out to try to take credit for myself. I'm not trying to put notches in my belt of political accomplishments. Lord, you deliver me. The glory is yours. I will praise your name. I will exult in your strength. My boast will be in your might. He says in verse 9, my soul. And in verse 10, my bones. You just put those pair of words together. Soul and body. David says, inwardly and outwardly, my life will praise your name. Because God, here's the truth. Who is like you? Search all the universe for deliverers and rescuers. There is none like the Lord. Who's like you? The picture in verse 10 of what God is like is the one who looks to the circumstance of the vulnerable and the weak. Those who might be the poor and the needy preyed upon by those who are the powerful and the mighty from the world's perspective. And the mighty think in the worldly sense that they're so clever and strong. And that all their strategies and all their motives are going to accomplish their wicked ends without anybody stopping them. And he says, Lord, I know what you're like. I know your word. And I know in your word, the mighty rise up against you and you bring them down. So, Lord, who is like you who delivers the poor from him who's too strong and the poor and needy from him who robs? I think verse 10 is David's way of speaking about himself as the needy one in this circumstance. And this means he's looking at what he's facing and he says, Lord, what I'm facing is too strong for me. But why does David pray? Because David knows, Lord, what I'm facing is not too strong for you. And therefore, David prays. He prays because he knows he himself is not strong enough. But he serves the God of heaven and earth who is mightier than all the armies and rivals coming against him. So in verses 1 to 10, the call for God to fight the psalmist's devious enemies is laid out. And David is invoking the divine warrior call and imagery for God to rise up with strength and might. To put on his shield and weapons, so to speak, and go to battle for David. And then in verses 11 through 18, the call is for God to rescue the psalmist from malicious witnesses. And in verses 11 to 18, this this second big section of the psalm, what seems to be the case is that these people are rising against David, coming against him to destroy his life. And part of their strategies are accusing David of things he didn't do. They are 
people who claim to have witnessed and are giving this information to whoever is going to hear it to destroy David's reputation, to undermine his credibility. He calls upon God to rescue him from these malicious witnesses. These enemies from the first 10 verses are the evil witnesses of verses 11 to 18. He says, Lord, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me things that I do not know. Imagine a situation in a court. Here, David is being put on the stand. And and there there are these people who are involved in the legal situations. And accusations have been made. And and these people who have claimed to bear witness are putting David in a difficult circumstance. So the questions start firing at him. What about this, David? What about that? Information he doesn't know. Information he's ignorant of because he's innocent. He has not done what they have accused him of. These malicious witnesses have risen up and their questions and their accusations are hurled against him. And he says, Lord, this is my situation. And I'm uttering my lament before you because they repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft in verse 12. They repay me evil for good. We learn something about this. David has some kind of prior history with these who have turned against him. And that stings especially in our human lives. We know this. These are not people wholly unknown to David. But rather these are people known to David who have now turned against David in their malice. David has done them good. And what have they done in verse 12? They've repaid me evil. They have done evil in response to what I have done, which was good. My soul is bereft. He is, in speaking of an unimaginable loss, he is absolutely grieved and sorrowful, inwardly and outwardly, by this circumstance. Here's what he might have expected. I have done them good, and so they will repay me honor for honor, good for good. That is not what happened, David says. Instead, in verse 13, But when I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. You know, David's giving us a bit more of the background and the circumstance here. What's the relationship with them like? He has done them good and shown them compassion when they were in dire straits. He says in verses 13 and 14, you know, what I did for them when they were in a circumstance like uh, sickness or being physically distressed, I put on sackcloth and fasted. In other words, I showed them compassion and sympathy. I entered into prayer on their behalf to intercede to the living God. And and I was so overwhelmed. I wept with those who wept. I grieved with those who grieved. I went about in verse 14 like it was my own friend I was grieving or my own brother that I lost. Or as one laments for a mom who dies, I was in mourning with them. So in response to their distress... I poured out what I would call good and compassion and prayerfulness. And in verse 15, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I didn't know tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. When he calls them wretches I didn't know, 
given what we already can establish, that he has some prior relationship with them, he's saying they're not who I thought they were. They're people I didn't really know, like they revealed themselves. People can be this way, right? We know in the human condition, our proneness to give trust and build relationships that over time prove to be other than what we thought. David has been in that situation. Oh, he knows what it's like to have counted on someone, trusted someone, become friends with someone only for that person to betray you. And David is describing here a betrayal. He says, I I stumbled, okay? And at my stumbling, what did they do? Did they come to my aid? They rejoiced. There's a a sickness to this, isn't it? There there is a, a malicious motive to see someone faltering and stumbling and smiling as a response. Oh, look at him go. As if they are experiencing some kind of glee with the stumbling David's experience. They gather against him. They tore at him without ceasing. Profane mockers at a feast, they gnash with their teeth. Tearing at him without ceasing, gnashing with teeth, makes him think of a predator. A lion, let's say. As he'll speak about in verse 17. In verses 15 and 16, to be torn at and to be gnashed at, it's like an angry animal. Now, if you were, if you were approaching an animal... And you said, oh, look how cute this thing is. And you reach out and it's looking at you and it's bearing its claws and it's gnashing its teeth. I bet I bet you would stop. I bet you just wouldn't keep going. I bet you wouldn't keep reaching. You'd say, oh, my goodness. OK, this uh, something's wrong here. This animal doesn't trust me like me. He's ready to leap upon me. Some of you, you know, you have pets like this. I know. And, and, and yet at the same time, these claws and teeth are are metaphors for the evil designs of his enemies. Their claws and their teeth are gnashing at David. They're not putting on sackcloth like he did for them. They're not praying for him like he did for them. They're not weeping with him like he did for them. They want David destroyed. And while he's down, they plan to trample him. He's more vulnerable now than ever. And they think to themselves, at last, at last. Like profane mockers at a feast. This reminds us again of chapter 1 of the Psalms. David has prayed for the wicked to become like chaff. And he said, blessed is the man who doesn't sit with the seat of the mockers. And the mockers here at the feast in verse 16, they've revealed themselves with how they've treated David. So he says in verses 17 and 18, Oh, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction. My precious life from the lion's. And I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Just as we saw in the first big section of the psalm, verses 1 to 10, verses 11 to 18 have similar elements. There's a call for God to intervene. Some description of enemies that are opposing him. And David's commitment to praise the Lord for God's mighty deliverance. Those very elements are present in verses 11 to 18. We get the information that David's got a prior relationship with these people, and it's now characterized by betrayal. It's unthinkable. It's horrific. These people are out for David's own life, and he says, Lord, you see this. So in verse 17, you know what David is acknowledging? That nothing takes place apart from God's ever-seeing eye. So he says, Lord, you see this. And I need to know, Lord, how long until you stop them? How long until you will do something? 
How long, O Lord, will you look on? This is not a question that I think is, is meant to be, you know, in some way irreverent to the Lord, but it's actually based in the hope of God, the hope in God that he will act justly toward the wicked and act with vindicating power on behalf of his people. So the question for the psalmist is not whether God will act, but how long? How long until? It's not a question of if. It is only a matter of when, because he trusts the Lord's righteousness. So he knows the Lord doesn't look at this situation of wickedness and the Lord is like, eh, that's not a big deal to me. That's not what David thinks is happening. David believes God sees this and God hates this. God despises the schemes of the wicked and he will judge the unrighteous. So he says, Lord, how much longer? How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction. My precious life from the lion's. I think the lion's imagery is connected to the tearing in verse 15. The gnashing of teeth in verse 16. He says in verse 18, I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. You know what David's committing to do? Lord, not only will I be privately rejoicing and exulting in your strength, I'm going to gather with the people of God and declare your praise with them. I'm going to, with the mighty throng of the people of God, I will give public praise. This isn't going to be something I will do in secret. Both in my heart and with my words in the hearing of others, all glory goes to your great name, O God, in the mighty throng. In verses 19 to 28, the last section of the psalm is the call for God to vindicate the psalmist and shame his foes. The call for God to vindicate the psalmist and shame his foes. Some of what we see in this latter section of verses 19 to 28 are similar to the opening verses. The call for God to vindicate the psalmist and shame his foes. He says, let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. They're rejoicing over David's plight. God says, Lord, David says, Lord, will you put a stop to that? Let them not rejoice over me. They think they've triumphed. Lord, will you demonstrate otherwise? Will you demonstrate that the net they've set will catch their own feet? They are wrongfully my foes, he says in verse 19. They are not responding to a provoked attack. They are not engaging in self-defense. They are not giving just retribution. They are wrongfully my foes. So, Lord, let them not stay with such confidence in their evil schemes. Let them not wink the eye. You know, the winking of the eye there is to, is to act with duplicity or deception with someone else. Because you're so confident. You've got a scheme and others are in on it. So you, you make a comment and then you turn your head and you wink your eye and, and all of a sudden people are in on it. It's like, okay, we see what's really going on. They've got plans for David's demise. And they're winking eyes back and forth. And he says, he says, Lord, let them not wink the eye, these who hate me without cause. Now this verse, in verse 19, is quoted in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is an example, the ultimate example, in the, in the Scriptures, of someone being surrounded by conspiring False testifying opponents seeking the destruction of his life. Jesus is a true and greater David 
where we read the language of this psalm fitting profoundly with the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And in John chapter 15, Jesus says that the world will hate his disciples because they hated him first. And in John 15, 25, Jesus says, this is why they'll do it. This is why they'll hate me and hate you. This is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without cause. And what it's doing is it's drawing upon Psalm 35, verse 19. David's experience is part of a larger pattern in the Word of God, fulfilled in Christ and His church, where people come unprovoked to the church of Jesus Christ with the raging of the dragon himself. He says in verse 20 here, Psalm 35, 20, For they do not seek peace. They do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. And they say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Their words, in other words, in verses 20 and 21, are not for David's welfare or restored situation to bring peace or shalom to what he's experiencing. They intend to bring whatever further disruption is necessary to get their way. They don't speak peace. Here's David and others. They're just quiet in the land. They're trying to live their lives. And there are troublemakers around them who are troublemakers inwardly, causing trouble outwardly. And they claim to see things and bear witness to things. Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Our eyes saw what you did, David. And our malicious, our witnesses uh, who are going to gather against you are going to speak it. In verse 11, we were told that they're malicious witnesses. God sees as well. Though these people open wide their mouths with deceit against David and say, our eyes have seen it. Here's David's hope. In verse 22. You have seen, O Lord. See, they claim to see and they're lying. And David's confidence is that nothing is getting past the Lord and that the Lord knows they are lying. The Lord knows they have come against David without cause. So David says, Lord, you have seen. And while in verse 20 and 21, the wicked are opening wide their mouths and are not speaking peace. He says, Lord, in verse 22, I need you to open your mouth now. You have seen and do not be silent. Lord, do not be far from me. Come with your might. Come with your saving, rescuing hand. Come with your righteous ways and thwart their plans against me. And friend, you may face in your life as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, someone that you interact with in your life, in your neighborhood or at your job, where you think, this person seems to have it out for me. I haven't done anything to provoke them. They might despise me without cause. It might be a family member. And their words toward you and their actions towards you are characterized by deceit. Things that they say about you to others, they know they're lying, you know they're lying, and they don't care. Friend, this is the kind of psalm with words for your prayer. This is the kind of psalm where you call upon the Lord to thwart their evil plans against you, that their malicious, unrighteous actions will fall apart. And that you seeking to walk with integrity before God and love the truth of God and looking to the faithfulness of God, that God would vindicate you in His timing. 
And that you trust the Lord's ways. And that God would be roused with vindication like in verse 23. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication. For my cause, my Lord and my God. He doesn't doesn't want the Lord to look away. He wants the Lord to draw near. He doesn't want the Lord to be silent. He wants the Lord to open His mouth with words of righteousness. He doesn't want the Lord to let the wicked prevail. He wants God to rouse Himself up with vindicating power and strength for the cause of David. This is a righteous cause. David is not being punished for his evil in in Psalm 35. This is a category of righteous suffering. Think about Job and his friends. Here's Job who has suffered greatly and his wife turns to him. And Job's wife says, Job, curse God and die. And Job's friends come against him. And Job's friends say, well, you know, Job, the reason you're facing what you're facing and the reason these tragedies have happened the way they've happened is because, Job, you're guilty. You've done something. So, Job, you need to figure out what you've done in turning and rebelling against God. And Job says, I know I am not rebelling against God. I love the Lord. I seek the Lord. I'm trying to obey the Lord. I am not turning from God. And I will not turn from him now either. Though all others around me turn against me, O Lord, I will not turn from you. I will call upon you that truth will prevail. I will call upon you that your righteousness will be displayed. And I will call upon you that the designs of the wicked will catch their own feet. And what they've devised for me will be their own undoing. This is an imprecatory song. And Jesus says... The unrighteous will gather against me and against those who follow me in order that this might be fulfilled. So let us be those who are convinced of the righteousness, wisdom, and ever-seeing eye of God in all of our lives so that we can say, O Lord, search my heart and prevail in your great might over the wicked who've come against me. In verse 24, he says, Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say we've swallowed him up. You see, David's demise is what their hearts want. That's what their hearts desire. So David says, Lord, don't give them what they want. They desire my destruction. Let them not have their hearts desire. Let them not say we've swallowed them up. David's praying that the Lord will swallow them up. Like the earth opening underneath the rebellion of Korah and others against Moses in number 16. That God would deter the wicked and he will thwart their plans. And that the wicked will not be swallowing up David. But instead they will be consumed. In verse 26, put to shame. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Magnifying themselves. Rejoicing at calamity. Desiring the destruction of David. Oh, the sheer arrogance of the wicked. That's what this language confirms. The wicked think they're unstoppable. They think they've got all the human mechanisms in their favor. And they're going to succeed. And David knows that God can undo all their plans in a moment. He can thwart all of their evil strategies and magnifying self against David. God can do something. 
And so in verse 26, he says, Lord, if they're going to wear garments, let it not be garments of their pride and of their arrogance. Clothe them with shame and dishonor. The next time David sees the wicked, he hopes they will be wearing disappointment all over their face. Like that's what he's hoping. Because right now they've magnified themselves over David's terrible distress. And then in verses 19 to 28, just like we saw in the earlier two large sections of the psalm, not only has David prayed for God to intervene, and he's described the evil designs of the wicked against him, he prays in these words with words of promise and commitment. God, I will give you the praise for your victory. He did it in the first section. He did it in the second section. He does it in the last section. He pledges that he will exalt God And in verses 27 to 28, the last part of the psalm reads like this. Let those who delight in my righteousness and shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. We get good news here in verse 27. While there are those who are rejoicing over David's destruction... There will be those who delight in David's cause being vindicated. David's not alone. We're not alone. David's not alone here. He says there are are those who delight in righteousness. They love God. And they love His people. They delight in righteousness. They will shout for joy and be glad. There are those who will mock David. There will be others who come around David to help There will be those who rejoice over his calamity. There will be others who rejoice over David's deliverance. They will shout for joy at the might of God on display. They won't be clothed with shame or disappointment. They will be clothed with praise. So David says, let that happen. Let them say in verse 27, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. And David says in verse 28, my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. David says, this is what I'm going to do. All the day long, my lips will tell of your great work. When the psalm concludes this way, it's a lengthy psalm, an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of calling for curses and judgment upon his enemies and the vindication of David. And David's life foreshadows the Lord Jesus. I already gave you an example in the Old, in the Old Testament quoting, or the Old Testament uh, verse, verse 19, of how it's used in John 15 in the life of Jesus. When you look at the teachings of Christ and you behold all of His miracles and all of His compassion and all of His restoration, it is astounding that people returned evil for good in the ministry of the Lord. They treated Him with suspicion and rejection. They conspired against the anointed one with plans for the destruction of his life. Jesus says in John 15, 25, they hated me without cause. And what Jesus is doing there is alluding to Psalm 35. Because just as David was opposed, the son of David was opposed and in a greater way. David wasn't the Messiah. Here's the gravity of the situation in the Gospels. Here are the people who are coming around a suffering king. The righteous sufferer in the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus, he's reviled. He's surrounded by false witnesses. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. Religious leaders demand that he be crucified, and the crowd echoes it. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us our heart's desire. And in the providential mystery of God's plan, 
as it unfolded, the vindication of Christ would be through resurrection of the dead over all his enemies. The powerful deliverance of the Lord, not from his suffering, but through it. That through suffering comes resurrection. That through death comes life. And then Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. John 15, 18, he says, If you're of the world, the world will love you as its own. The the world recognizes what belongs to it. But Jesus says, Because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Which means Psalm 35 is not just relevant for the Lord Jesus, the one who's the true and greater David, who is opposed without cause. In Christ, we shall be opposed by the world. So Jesus says, don't let that surprise you. The world hated me first. The world hates you and will hate you without cause. In Matthew 10, 22, he told his disciples, you'll be hated for my name's sake. In 1 Peter 3 Outside the Gospels, the Apostle Peter told his readers to be prepared to be reviled for their good behavior. In 1 Peter 3.17, he told his readers to be ready to suffer for doing good. In 1 Peter 4.14, he said, prepare to be insulted for the name of Christ. Psalm 35 is a psalm of comfort. And it is a warning to the wicked that God is righteous and sovereign, good and all-wise, And reigns over heaven and earth. And so when the psalmist turns to the Lord and speaks these words, the wicked should shudder in their steps. And they should turn from their evil and they should repent. Because God will answer the prayer of this psalm. And he will judge all those who turn against him. And all those who have reviled his people. So we cry out, contend for us, O Lord. How long, O Lord? Let us be like David and resolve to tell of God's righteousness and his faithfulness. To remember his deliverances and to long for the day of the return of Christ. Our prayers are not in vain. We cry out to God with a view of a cross. Our prayers are shaped by the reality that the Lord Jesus died for our sins, was raised from victory, was opposed without cause, and was vindicated over all heaven and earth with a name that is above every name. We do not pray Psalm 35 in vain. He has raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And therefore, because He bore our sins and defeated death and disarmed the devil, we pray for God to defend us, to contend with our enemies. David's prayer is based in what he knew about God. David is a Bible man. And his hope is shaped by what the Bible taught. And we have more of the Bible than David did in his day. We have the stories of the Messiah. We have the fulfillment of the ancient promises. And we know that the Lord Jesus shall return to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom shall know no end. Therefore we have hope. The raging dragon does his worst against the church. And the enemies of the gospel seek to oppose and humiliate the church as enemies of the cross. But we know God is a God of perfect justice and righteousness. So we trust Him. We call to Him. We pray to Him for He is our refuge and is unfailing as a refuge for His people. Christ reigns. Christ reigns. We gather on the Lord's day because the tomb is empty and Christ reigns. And He shall put all of His enemies under His crucified and risen and ascended feet. Let's pray.